I'm very lucky to be joined today by Chapo Trap House OG, Matt Kushbaum Chrisman. And we're going to have a chat about your new series, Time for My Stories. Uh, but first of all, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How's it down, down under? Down under. How's yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of paradise. It's pretty good on, uh, on planet Australia at the moment. Uh, life's pretty much normal. <laughs> it's, it's weird. We had a week of lockdown a while ago because we had one case kind of breakout, but well, good for you. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm so proud and happy for all of you. I know. It must be great to hear. Um, but I, I've been vicariously living through your trauma over there through uh, <laughs> uh, poisoning my brain. Um, so I've got a few questions. Some of them are quite long. Uh, I want to try and set things up so maybe people who haven't heard the show yet have an idea what's going on. So I guess I'm at the other end of the millennial spectrum at 24. So I feel a bit out of my depth with some of these shows. The first prestige series I saw was House of Cards and that has not, ah. aged, has not aged well at all. Wow, that's, that's, man, that's, uh, that is a degraded uh, version of the, of the format. Man. Very much wow. so. And I think it was before we actually got Netflix in Australia. So I rented it on DVD from Blockbuster. Hell um, yes. Yes. So I've tried to catch up over the years with uh, like Breaking Bad, Twin Peaks, some of The Wire, the first and third season of True Detective, but not the second. But I haven't seen any of Mad Men or Oz or The Shield. And I know those are all shows that are pretty significant in the Chapo canon. I'm watching The Sopranos at the moment. I'm up to season three. So... What have I missed and what insights do you think my listeners might glean from your new series? Well, what we're trying to do basically is just chart through uh, these shows a sort of, I guess, the psychological topography of uh, like the American middle brow. Yes. Because (laughs) uh, around the turn of the century, the there there was sort of a, there's been sort of a shift over the years in um, in the art forms that were considered uh, the, the art forms that were sort of the uh, uh, the cultural fulcrum for discourse uh, around uh, from people who considered themselves like educated. Yes. You know, not, yeah. not not hot, not uh, like intellectuals, but but people who consider themselves uh, minimally ed- college educated and felt like part of being a college educated person is having opinions on art. And in yeah. the mid- middle of the 20th century, that was uh, that was books, yeah. uh, the novels. Uh, and then it was films uh, through the 80s and 90s. And now. Uh, after since the turn of the century, it's been television, mm. uh, and so the show is uh, looking at these programs. Some of the ones that came before it that sort of set the stage for it, but mostly the ones after that turn. Uh, and by looking at them, sort of seeing what uh, what this like American middle brow uh, consumer uh, is looking for, what what they're responding to culturally uh, yeah. and what they're trying to, sort of trying to get out of 
the entertainment that they have decided to invest intellectual energy in. Yeah. And I mean, I think I've got a, a question on this a bit later on, but it, it it's kind of goes beyond even just the intellectual energy. It's almost a, a personality trait now. And I think with my generation in particular, it's that's kind of the air we breathe and that's uh it's quite normal for TV to be a defining feature in our personality and how we kind of relate to other people. So I, I want to get to that soon, but to start with, I want to have a look at this Gunsmoke episode at the time of us recording. That's the most recent one that's come out. I think, is there a new one maybe coming out tomorrow or something? The last? Yes. This I'm not like sure which, which episode it will be, but yes. Was, was the Gunsmoke one the first one you recorded? Yes, it was. Yes. I kind of, I, because I know that the Sons of Anarchy one came out first, but this one, the way Felix set it up felt like this was the start. And I guess yeah. it, it makes sense given it's the earliest one. So I want to start by talking about this series because it's right at the beginning of this kind of the TV phenomena in America. And I think it provides a good point of contrast with what we have now. And we can kind of trace from there to where we are and maybe see what we learn along the way. So for context, can you tell us a little bit about Gunsmoke and why you thought it was a good starting point for this series? Because it was the first and the longest running uh, our uh, uh, drama, television drama, at a time when those uh, uh, serialized, rather, uh, in the early days of television, the 50s and early 60s, most shows you had variety shows situation comedies uh and there were dramas but they were generally uh anthologized sort of stage play things there were a few soap opera like proto soap operas like peyton place uh but gunsmoke is one of the first and most enduring uh drama show and it used the most enduring uh genre of that era which was the western Mm. and so everything that that becomes television as a, as a genre, dramatic television anyway, yeah. begins really with those uh, ingredients. And yeah. so it felt like Gunsmoke was a good way to start because it's, uh, it's, it's one of the, it's a thing that has a lot of the DNA of later programs in it. Yeah. And I know you mentioned how it kind of was from a time where television was just something square in the middle of TV of sorry, of movies and radio. It sort of hadn't defined itself as its own medium yet, but the Western genre as well, obviously that was the reality of that was still a long way in the past. So why do you think that appealed as a genre in that period? I know you've talked a bit about the frontier spirit, um, but why was it resonating in the fifties? Uh, because we had, we were finding a new frontier sort of, I think as, as like the, the new, uh, the, the new, we were the sheriff basically. Like we had gone from conquering our own continent, uh, uh, to, to presiding sort of over a global, uh, order. And, uh, that made us identify with those figures of, 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 law enforcers in sort of mm. a, a anarchistic uh, frontier, which is, was basically what we were trying to uh, uh, tame uh, in the aftermath of the war. Yeah. Well, I, I think the world war two and the trauma associated with it was something you touched on a lot and how trauma wasn't necessarily something that 
was stigmatized at that time. It, it just wasn't something that people talked about at all. Whereas yes. in, in contrast, now we have meditations on trauma in uh, almost every piece of American media. It seems to be yeah. a, a large pillar of it, whether it be in serious context or in the adult cartoons that Felix often bemoans. So what yeah, do you think? WandaVision, after all. It's I know. About yeah. grief. <laughs> it's about grief. It's about loss, folks. Yeah, and it perseveres. Yeah. Um, so what do you think accounts for this, this kind of turning inwards? Uh, I think that it's the side result, the, the result of sort of, uh, I mean, it's the, uh, what, what World War II kind of gifted America was this bounty and this ability to spread uh, this middle-class style comfort more broadly than it ever had been before. Mm. And uh, by doing that, creating a huge new class of people within a middle strata of income, all of whom have access to higher education. And mm. that creates a different cultural context where, uh, you know, caring about your feelings becomes something or, or expressing your feelings, uh, uh, crafting your personal self-identity becomes uh, in the absence of like the material scarcity that defined uh, life in America for many in previous generations, uh, it, within a context of comfort, that becomes, you know, as, as you go up the Maslow's uh, pyramid, <laughs> uh, it becomes uh, more, you become more fixated on yourself and more isolated from people around you as the drift of suburbanization and as the, the as uh, like social bonds are replaced by uh, mediated relationships. Uh, the only thing we really have is ourselves and our traumas and our emotions. And, and, and then culture becomes uh, a ritual of sort of reckoning with those uh, and looking for them to be reflected in the culture we consume. Yeah. So I guess an idea of affirmation and trying to feel that we're uh, that we're valid, I guess. Um, yes, we need. Yeah, yeah, we want someone because there's because uh, like uh, the the social affirmation that you might have taken for granted because you're living closer to the bone and in a more dense social fabric is gone, and now you're just you. Yeah, and you need someone to uh, to affirm that you actually exist. Yeah, because I mean, it seems like this is just us scrambling to connect and feel something that we're that we used to kind of not have to worry about so much we had those social bonds but now we're so atomized that it's we kind of need to outsource our our sense of self to these things and i think uh i don't know we, we've talked a bit about individualism on this podcast before and how like when i was going through school that was encouraged it was seen as like you know you've got to find a special thing the thing that like helps you carve out your niche and looking back, I, I feel like I was shortchanged to some extent that we were kind of promised that, you know, you could stand out and be special. Whereas I think in the past people didn't have that expectation. So they weren't disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we have created this, this system where like you are presented with life as an isolated individual without, without the, the comfort and, and sense of solidity provided by a community, but that's okay because you can seek uh, a full individuated actualization that wouldn't be possible if you were restrained, Yeah. but then people get to adulthood and they find out that, Oh, 
that there is no actual uh, mechanism for that, that it is really a, a fantasy that, that looks from outside of it, like especially as, as you're a young person yeah. who is sort of straining against family expectations and restraints, something that looks like liberation, but then you get to the other side of it and you find that there is no liberation there. And because you have uh, not even out of your own choice, really, uh, been sort of desocialized and atomized, that you uh, that there is no alternative. And mm. so you have to just keep seeking this uh this the phantom uh, this yeah you you have to you have to essentially uh find things to care about uh find uh, uh identity structures to focus on and then put energy into them until they lose their ability to uh to sustain your attention, your passion, and your belief in them, and then you got to find another one. And each one you seek, it's the the uh, the highs are lower. The, the highs are lower. They last uh, less long. They gutter out faster. And then you find yourself, uh, as time goes on, more isolated uh, and less capable of dealing with it. Yeah, and I mean broadly, even if you do kind of come to those realizations you're confronted by uh everyone else not really worrying and kind of being quite comfortable and that in itself is uh kind of quite alienating as well when you do feel like you've seen behind the curtain but no one else really wants to look yeah and the thing is is that even even if they did uh feel the same way you are you would know because everyone is 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 everyone is being very uh, uh public with their feelings but uh, all in the context of the, these identities that they're trying to uh, formulate and, and have reflected by others. Yeah. There's, but uh, that only works if you accept these frameworks. You essentially can't admit at any point that you have uh, that, that, that you don't know what you're doing. And, that because, yeah. <laughs> and so even you, can, you can't even find a point of commiseration with others, even if you might feel the same thing because of the lack of uh, of, of trust we have with each other. Mm. Yeah. I, th um, I think like a few years back, I, I've been in a band for a few years and I went through a period where it was kind of a good vehicle to talk about like mental health and those kind of issues. And, but looking back, I, it feels very much like it's a performance. Like that's what the zeitgeist was at the time to sort of just purge your inner feelings and because that was brave, that was strong, that was what you were supposed to do. And now I look back and realize it was probably quite cynical at times. It was kind of trying to buy into what was fashionable. And it feels like if even those kind of deepest things are now just commodities, you do just want to shut off and kind of save it for maybe people who are closer and not just putting it out into the world indiscriminately. Yeah, yeah, because because everyone is is looking for grist for their own mill, and yeah. there's no sense of collaboration. So uh, everything has to be uh, at this uh, assumed uh, antagonistic context with each other. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let me see. What have I got next? I think we've touched a little bit on this point already, but in this episode, you kind of made the point that contemporary shows kind of 
in the streaming age are probably a lot closer to what we assumed older shows were like. So kind of quite straightforward morality plays that resolve complex situations in absurdly short periods of time, sometimes within an episode. Whereas in older shows, uh, characters were quite stagnant. There wasn't an expectation that they would grow. Um, I mean, I think we've talked about this already, but I think it's interesting to comment on why we're so desperate for these characters with implausible emotional arcs. And what do you think the fallout of that is if people are kind of getting their emotional education from these series? What are we going to end up with in 10 years' time? Uh, I mean, it, it creates a, a, a fantasy of, as, we, as I was talking about, a, a fantasy of, of like transcendence, of personal, of the idea that, that encounters in your day-to-day life are going to uh, sort of necessarily through sort of almost a tidal gravity, pull you towards some better version of yourself. Mm. Uh, And, (laughs) you know, and then, and that obviously is not true. True. The things that, the things that, uh, uh, that uh, like make us uh, better, you know, in some sense uh, are, are not to be found within ourselves. Hmm. They're, they're, they're contextualized by relationships with others. Uh, and some shows, like I'd say Deadwood understands that. And is, is why I think Deadwood is probably the best of the, of those lot of programs. Hmm. Uh, but um, for the most part, it's going to make us all just continue to believe in this fantasy of, of, of self-actualization through, through uh, inward focus mm. because we see over and over again, this, uh, this play out, this, this dramatization of, of uh, growth as yeah. some sort of linear process. Do you think it'll reach a tipping point though, or do you think it'll just keep refining itself so that uh, it evades our kind of questioning of it? Well, it, 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 yeah. I mean, it changes, it shifts. Like I would say now at the current moment, the, the shows of the moment, which we didn't really talk too much about in this show, we're talking about the, the, the first and the second classics. generation of yeah. prestige are now uh, more explicitly cultural, but uh, they, they aren't really so much about individuals getting like becoming better people as examples of good people for you, the viewer to yes. identify with. Yes. <laughs> so that's the next level of it is okay. How, now television's going to make you a better person, not by making you look inward, but by showing you yourself in your most virtuous, uh, uh, by yeah. this most virtuous version of yourself, simply by virtue of the fact that you're watching it. Mm. But I guess just coming back to the idea of it, a tipping point though, do you think people will just keep being okay with that, even as kind of material conditions deteriorate? I mean, what do you think could kind of jolt people out of that? Or is that just not really likely to happen? I mean, I think, I think I have no idea. I, I, I've, my, <laughs> my, my, uh, optimism is really at this point is entirely wrapped up in my uh, understanding of how little I know about what's going to come happen. Okay. Like yeah. th- that that's where I can feel good about the future is just by reminding myself of how small my aperture of understanding of the world is and how, mm-hmm. how, uh, how limited my, the horizon of my understanding is. Uh, but I, I would say that, that I think that this entire phenomenon, this, this phenomenon, this phenomenon of prestige 
uh, middlebrow television is really dependent on a, a, a level of material security mm. uh, a, a, that is seemingly uh, not viable in the even medium term. So that would make me think something is going to change about the way that we entertain ourselves, but I don't know uh, how that would be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess it's all a bit up in the air. Um, one point I thought would be worth just looking at is the, the phenomenon of the anti-hero in kind of American media, because I mean, obviously house of cards being one of my first entry points, that was a, a, a crash course in that phenomena. Why do you think that kind of character has such an appeal? Um, especially like in Australia, I didn't question it as much, but kind of getting to know a bit more about America and some of the like intensely conservative elements. Why do you think these shows do achieve a level of kind of mainstream appeal despite kind of dealing with sort of moral depravity with the, the hero character? Uh, well, those shows like the anti-hero shows are, I think, uh, are, are those characters are the people that we essentially need to be to succeed Hmm. in this world like that that to thrive in the current social order requires us to have a flexible to non-existent moral core yes <laughs> uh and and i think all of us to some extent or another recognize that hmm. uh and then what makes the characters compelling is that they marry that to some sort of charisma yeah. with some sort of some sort of uh, 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 talent, uh, uh, insight, uh, flair, panache that stands in for morality, uh, and that sort of justifies their place as a protagonist. And, and I think we all, to some extent or, or another, understand that that sort of is the price of success in the, in the world at the moment. And so whether we are terrified mm -hmm. of that, uh, and shrink from it or, we have made our peace to, to the extent we feel like we have to with it. These, these characters are the ones that, that embody uh, that compromise, uh, that, that, that uh, dynamic. And, and then we, we get to uh, vicariously enjoy success through them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess when I watched breaking bad, I was probably like 17 or so and still very much in the, you know, Walter White is the, the good guy frame of mind because it was, you know, it's a TV show. He's the main character. He must be the good guy. And looking back now, I can kind of see the, uh, that it was maybe hinting at something else. And especially watching the Sopranos now that it's a lot more clear that Tony is not supposed to be a hero necessarily, that he is in many ways quite well, in almost always very disgusting and repulsive, but he does have that charisma, I guess. Do you think that kind of trope can survive in this sort of shift more towards seeing good characters? Or do you think that's kind of on the, the decline? No, I, I think that for now that, yeah, that Tony Soprano style uh, anti-hero is gone because yeah. the, the shift to the shift, I mean, we're seeing a shift now away from, uh, from even, the, the center of gravity being watching shows to being talking about them. Yeah. Uh, and with that shift, uh, the, the, the difference between denotative and connotative meaning kind of goes away. Like you can only, things can only really mean one thing if you're trying mm. to, to discuss them amongst, you know, in a giant 
public agora full of people, all of whom are looking to find the least charitable description understanding <laughs> of anything you might say. Yeah. So that means that things have to only mean one thing. And that means that uh, characters uh, have to embody sort of very flat virtues uh, or vices in order to be handleable by the discourse. Yeah. And so like a character like Tony, people would freak out. Like he's racist. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, he, you're, and you're showing him on TV as a hero. You're, you're, you're ratifying his racism. You're ratifying his misogyny. Yeah. So I think, yeah, the anti-hero for now is, is, is on the way out. If not entirely dead, yeah. it's going to be replaced. Now it's, it's being replaced by, uh, yeah, purely virtuous heroes, purely evil villains who, of course, have to get a Hayes Code comeuppance or else the danger is they're too cool. And if they don't go down, that uh, um, that tells the audience that they should do the things that that person does. Mm. So it, it is it's an it's a flattening and a denaturing of uh, of artistic merit, frankly, I mean you can see those first generation of shows. I, I still would argue that the whole concept of, of uh, television as some sort of art form on par with even film, let alone literature is erroneous. It is the yeah. product of its time and yep. sort of the necessity created by the technology and the way people live. But those early shows are better than anything that's on now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just, they are. Yeah. Uh, and and th that means that the stuff now, the stuff later coming is going to be better than what's going to come after that, which is terrifying to think of. Mm. But, you know, for me, that the only thing that that makes me feel good about that is that at a certain level, this stuff gets so uh, uh, bland and, and yeah. nutrient deficient that you can't you just can't keep eating it. I mean, some people will, but uh, I think other people will find it just no longer palatable and you will not, it will not be the only thing you can engage with, which for a while really did feel like was the case with, with television shows. Yeah. Well, I mean, whenever I see kind of Netflix produced on something, that's usually kind of a clear sign to give it a miss. And yeah, I mean, Oh God. Yeah. yeah. Netflix only makes garbage. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, as far as critique of, well, critique's probably the wrong word, commentary on a character like Tony Soprano goes and how you do see people saying like, oh, he's, he's racist, he's misogynist, you're, you're giving these kind of views air. Do you think it's often cynical or do you think that it's just kind of brain poisoned or, or somewhere in the middle? Because, I mean, if you watch the show, it's very like clear that he's not supposed to be the good guy and it sort of seems that these people probably haven't watched the show. Well, uh, I would say that for younger people who are brought up, who've been brought up entirely online, who, who have no real experience of a unmediated existence, even an, an unscreen based existence. Uh, I think a lot of them are being earnest they're not they're not being cynical, mm. although the the incentives are uh, structured in such a way that the cynical are also incentivized to do it. So you have yeah. this, like with anything online, you have this mixture of sort of naivete and cynicism and, uh, it, it, that pr pulls everything in the, in, a, in the least charitable direction in the most yeah. Philistinic Philistine direction. Uh, I think that, yeah, if you've grown up entirely online, you are so bombarded with images, media concepts that, that 
the kind of contextual, uh, inherently ironic understanding of media that predominated at the high, high point of prestige television uh, is no longer uh, sustainable because you don't have the bandwidth to hold on to that kind of ambiguity. You have to slot things as yeah. they come at you in good or bad uh, uh, holes yeah. because it's all coming too fast. You're Lucy at the chocolate factory. <laughs> and so I think that there is just a psychic need to flatten everything. And, uh, and th that means that if you something that is from before this era, before the creators, before Hollywood has been sort of uh, disciplined by its feedback into providing people with content that will not upset them, they do get kind of freaked out by it because mm. it was in a very literal sense, not made for them. And yeah. we don't really have that concept because if everything is accessible, then there's this under sort of understanding that that means everything is the imagined audience for everything is everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it leaves, it doesn't leave much room for stuff that pushes boundaries or tries to do it. Because, because you could imagine a bad person taking it the wrong way. And if that's the case and we are fully depoliticized while being more uh we are depoliticized in our power we have no mm. ability to control uh the, the 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 shift of or the drift of our, our our country or even our personal destinies increasingly but we but and as we as that sense of powerlessness increases uh, our need for our entertainment to reflect our values to give us some sense of progress some sense that there is a force towards uh justice in the world becomes more po po uh, more powerful yeah. and that means that we seek more and more a a sort of a a social license or i mean a social validation in entertainment rather than any kind of aesthetic appreciation i mean yeah. it, it, it really is a return of the hayes code and it really does feel like it's we're at the other end of a sort of a bell curve of artistic media <laughs> yeah. literacy. Like yeah. in, the, in the early films, when people were running away from the screen because they thought the train was coming at them, yeah. there was a feeling that you can't depict bad things because people will do bad things. But then as uh, we got that big post-war um, bonanza and it created this newly uh, – uh, educated population, people felt that they were able to engage with art at a more subtle and uh, uh, nuanced way that, that uh, depiction was not necessarily endorsement. Mm. Uh, but now at, we're at the other end of that bonanza. People are once again, feeling uh, a, a, a economic precarity that had, sort of not it's not existed in this country for generations and yeah. they're also now at the other end of a media cycle where they've gone from having never seen much in the way of uh of moving images to being composed almost entirely of moving images yeah uh and those two things have the same effect of making it impossible to make distinctions within it yeah yeah it's because uh, a few years ago i was the kind of person who did buy into a lot of the discourse around uh, what was appropriate to show and not to show, because that's what I grew up with. And 
it's been kind of liberating eschewing that and um, not feeling compelled to to steer clear of things because they were maybe a bit dicey or kind of uh, morally complex. But uh, And it does put you in a similar position to what you said of uh, kind of acknowledging you don't know everything and can't know everything and there's a comfort in that at least. But it, it is kind of a, it, it's a cold comfort to some degree, I guess, when you're kind of giving up that, the certainty that you're you are progressing towards something and instead just kind of letting things fall how they may yeah (laughs) it's a it was it's been a rude awakening um nothing having meaning necessarily in the way that you thought it would or uh yeah that you'd been taught it should uh but it, it does at least make me um I just remember at uni having to learn about conceptual art and stuff and being told that that was uh particularly special and pushing boundaries so I'm glad now that I I've kind of a moved past that as well there's been some benefit with it um so i had some questions about future trends and moving the goalposts of prestige but i think you've you've well and truly touched on all of that um i want to kind of shift the focus a little bit because um and it kind of moves out of the the focus of of the new podcast but i think it's still very much in the pop culture sphere so an area of culture i feel much more connected to and easier to engage with is like genre films. So sci-fi mm-hmm. and horror. And I feel that these tend to kind of reveal what a society is anxious about in a way that's just far enough away from reality to still be enjoyable as entertainment. Right. Yeah. So kind of on the flip side of watching Adam Curtis documentaries where it can be quite a harrowing experience of reckoning with the reality of our situation. You kind of, you experience the the thrill of the anxiety without having to, think about it too much. So, right. And we've talked a bit about John Carpenter films on this podcast before we did a little series on escape from New York. We've talked about the thing a little bit, but do you think there are some quintessential American genre pieces, which uh, kind of play into the age of empire? Hmm. Interesting. Like, so you mean movies specifically? Yeah. Like well, I mean, if, you films? Can, if there are series that you can think of, but yeah, I thought oh, okay. like, film as well. Okay. I always thought that uh, the the movie that best exemplifies America's experience of World War II yeah. uh, is not Saving Private Ryan mm. or oh. The Thin Red Line. Uh, it's Kelly's Heroes. Okay. You, have you, you ever have seen that film? Up. No, I have not. Okay. Kelly's Heroes is a movie from, I believe, let me see. It's 19, it's a 70, like 1970 or something. 1970. Uh, okay. And it's about, it stars Clint Eastwood uh, Telly Savalas, Dan, uh, and Don uh, Rickles as uh, troops who are in Europe after D-Day who find out about a, a French bank full of gold behind mm. German lines who steal some tanks and go and get the gold. Uh, and they're, at one point, they enlist a tank commander played by Donald Sutherland who is playing a wildly anachronistic hippie. Yep. Uh, and... To me, that movie exemplifies how America processed World War II. Obviously, the guys who fought it came back with just nightmares in their heads that Mm. taunted them their entire lives, but they kept them there. You know, like they, they, of course, put they express them domestically in, I'm sure, millions of of horrifying, you know, uh, tableau in in the at the family level, at the the micro level. I mean, yes. uh, Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier of World War Two, who became a movie star afterwards uh, and and, uh, started films that 
were just reenactments of his exploits, slept with a loaded 45 pistol under his bed, under his pillow uh, mm. every night uh, after he got back uh, from war. But at the level of culture, World War II really was a, a, a adventure, a, a, a morally justified uh, uh, romp, basically. Yeah. And I always felt that to understand the Cold War better, uh, you should watch back to back two movies to understand the American and Soviet domestic experience of World War II. Okay. Kelly's Heroes and Come and See. I see. I've been reading a lot about Come and See recently, and I sadly it's not on Criterion Channel. But uh, well, can you tell us a little bit about that one? Uh, it's an '80s film uh, from the Soviet Union uh, about the. Uh, it's it's this brutally um, graphic depiction of a Belarusian village being destroyed by anti-partisan Nazi unit uh, through the eyes of a small boy. Mm. Uh, and it is one of the most uh, upsetting films ever made. Uh, and to me, uh, yeah, like w considering that the Soviet Union was invaded and uh, its population killed to the tune of 10 million people uh, compared to the United States, who was able to avoid any domestic uh, yes. violence at all uh, and to come out of the war as the unchallenged hegemon of the Western world. Uh, yeah. I think it makes a nice contrast. Yeah. I can kind of see the, the, the decadence with the suffering. Um, you, but of you course uh, in the nineties, if you want to talk American empire, uh, starship troopers. Yes. Yes. That, I, that movie to me, uh, I mean, Verhoeven, obviously, one of the great something. American satires, satirists, be, because he is not an American, he was able to come here and see us. I, I think Cameron, Cameron and Verhoeven, I mean, Cameron obviously is not a satirist, but I think mm. that he, he understands the implications of American empire yeah. uh, in a way that you really only can if you're somehow outside of American experience. Yes. He's a Canadian. Yeah. Uh, and like Avatar, I would say, is another film that understands American empire. Uh, but Starship Troopers, a film that anticipated the Iraq war uh, t t t almost 10 years before it happened uh, and the media culture and just the social order that we were creating. Uh, and when you look at what Verhoeven said he was uh, responding to in America in the 90s that made him yeah. see us heading in that direction, it's just so kind of uh, adorably anodyne to what came later. But that's because the guy's a damn genius. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I watched that film quite recently for the first time. I picked it up, I think at like a Salvation Army for $2 on DVD. And I mean, I'd, I'd read a lot about the contemporary reviews, which were quite dismissive. Oh, of it. good God. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you can kind of see why, because it was a bit too close to the bone, I guess, in terms of uh, the trajectory. Well, I mean, America like we're talking on. about the inability of, uh, of people to uh, understand like connotative meaning. I mean, this is before the internet. This is before we our current moment of, uh, you know, uh, Neo Hayscoat stuff. And you saw people essentially saying, well, these are the good guys mm. and they're acting like Nazis. So therefore this movie is, is a Nazi movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, no, you, you missed the point slightly. Um, and I would just decide, no, I guess as, other sort of satires that have done a lot of work in that regard. Um, Network was one that. Oh, was, absolutely. That uh, I think probably you put me onto indirectly through the, um, 
I remember hearing the intro to the first Adam Curtis episode and being like, oh, what's this monologue from? And it's the, um, the beady one from the end. And oh, that yeah. film in particular had just, it, I realized after watching it that I, I hadn't seen a satire movie before. Uh, yeah. Stuff that's called satire now is just uh, nowhere near and what's as so articulate. Funny is that the most famous moment of that scene, at least in my mind, I mean, I know the mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore became the catchphrase of the movie. Yeah. But in my mind, the Ned Beatty speech is the, is the fulcrum. And that's not satire. Yeah. The, what, what, what Beatty says to Peter Finch in that scene, that was that speech in some version was given to every, every political leader, every mm. media figure, everyone with any illusion of power within the social political superstructure at some point in the 1970s. Yeah. That, that crucial decade, the critical decade, as Judith Stein called it, when when uh, the labor influence, when 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 like uh, class uh, uh, working class uh, uh, collaboration with uh, like the state in the West and also in uh, in the uh, I'm sorry, uh, the working class collaboration with the state in the West ended yeah. uh, on terms of capital. And and Beatty's speech uh, perfectly encapsulates that that shift. And uh, and when Fitch comes back out and just starts telling people the truth, uh, and he gets such low ratings that he has to be killed, <laughs> uh, it was really it was the Reaganite vision of unrestrained individual uh, pursuit that came out of that uh, the wreckage. Yeah, that yeah. The, the, people don't want to hear that they have no power as. Uh, as workers anymore, that, 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 that their instruments of, of uh, power are now hollow. Yeah. Uh, so you tell them that that's okay because they can make it on their own. Yeah. Well, I think I've got one more question and then we'll finish up. And it, it touches on that and some, what you were saying earlier about the, the World War II generation who kept it all inside but then their children and that kind of the hippie generation uh, in the podcast, you, uh, you mention how, what was it? How this kind of generation saw what happened to the generation before and thought, Oh, war is good. Like you go and you do your service and then life's good afterwards. Uh, mm-hmm. we should keep doing that. You didn't touch on in the podcast, what some examples of the culture produced from that were. And I wanted to, I'm sure you will in future episodes, but I thought, what do you see as some examples of that, of reactions that were like, oh, war is good? Because I was thinking movies like Top Gun, that kind of <laughs> thing. But yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that, that, like I said, Saving Private Ryan really is the, is the, was the culmination of that in the 90s when, mm. you know, the US was essentially looking for a, a moral framework for its continued military domination of the globe, yeah. uh, which it no longer had after the fall of the Soviet Union. And uh, it really was, it was really to everyone at, in Bauer's benefit when 9-11 happened <laughs> and it was able to give a framework to apply that to. Weird. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the reality of the war on terror ever since the failure to find any catharsis, any triumph, any, uh, any way that you could even, for a moment, delude yourself that you're actually making anyone's life better, uh, I think has left us now in a situation where we have retreated entirely into fantasy. And so our 
tales now of military virtue and the, the virtue of power are literally superhero stories yeah, where yeah. the villains are not even human. Uh, yes. and, and because that's the only way that we can maintain that emotional relationship to power because our actual experience of it is so debased. A good note to finish on, I think. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for talking to me, Matt. I really appreciate it. And uh, Yeah, thank you. Please stay safe where you are. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try, buddy. Cool. You, you, you hang out in your uh, tires, your <laughs> tire float in the, in the fucking swimming pool yeah on, on this little island yeah